Um, we are in Matthew's gospel, chapter five. I think it's on page 760 in the black Bibles around the room. I wanna encourage you to, to just to dial in there. Um, I'll say this, this word of preface um, before we get started this morning. We are in a series of difficult passages, difficult passages, not necessarily to untangle, but difficult passages for us to understand and submit to. They come home to us in areas of our lives where there's wounding, in areas of our lives where there is, uh, there, there's, there's pain, a significant amount of it. Um, and so I, I want to, in the same way that I began our gathering last week, I wanna remind you of something that uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter eight begins that wonderful chapter with a, 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 an exclamation of worship. And it begin, and he begins by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are Christ, in Christ Jesus, which means are Christ Jesus's own, his people, disciples. That's coming on the heels of the Apostle Paul saying in chapter seven, he's wrestling with the gospel that he's just proclaimed to the church. And then he's recognizing how wonderful it is and, and how, uh, how he does not live up to the standards of the righteousness of God. And he finds himself ex exclaiming. That's what it is. There's exclamation points there. He's saying, who will save me from this body of death? I don't do what I want to do. And I want to do what I don't want to do. I'm totally wretched. I'm, I'm beside myself. I'm constantly falling all over my own feet, hurting the people around me. I'm grieving the heart of God. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has given himself for me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This morning's text is hard, and I recognize this, that there are stories in the room. There are, uh, there are incredible wounds that only you know, or the people closest to you know that you carry. There are stories and wounds, and I want to just say to you that I consider the stories that I do know, and I understand that there are stories in the room that I don't know. And I'm going to come to you this morning with straight teaching, but I also want you to understand that I am uh, I'm concerned for you at a level that I, I care for you. And just like the Lord Jesus, I do not want to wound you more. But I want to be faithful to him and I want to be faithful to his teaching because his teaching supersedes what I want for any of us. Absolutely. He's Lord, I'm not. And so in all of that, I, I want you to hear that this is going to be straight talk about the subject of divorce according to the uh, Moses, according to the Pharisees, and according to Jesus in this text. There's only three verses here. Three sentences, two verses, actually. Um, it's short, it's concise. And so we're gonna try to hit the nail on the head. But I understand that there's gonna be a, probably a lot of questions and nuances from your own life that don't get answered here. And I'm, I'm personally okay leaving some of that undone, um, but I don't want us to be okay leaving it undone. So where that story comes home to you and where you need answers and where you're hungry for knowledge and where you're trying to understand what the Lord would have you do and how he would have you respond, you and I, you need to be a student of his word. You cannot rely on me or just the people around you to give you that, but he has revealed himself in his word. And so he does 
equip us, right? So that's just way of preface this morning on this topic. It comes on the heels of last week's passage as well. Um, some Bible, last week was, uh, if you uh, look at a woman with lustful intent, uh, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Uh, it was the teaching, cut your hands off, cut your eyes out if they cause you to sin. It's better to lose one member than your whole body in hell. And then this week, we get into the, the subject of uh, divorce. Some Bible translations, don't, they, don't, uh, they don't separate these two at all with a heading. They just come together. They run together. In many ways, they're incredibly connected. And so is anger and murder as well. Anger, lust, divorce, do violence to human relationships. That's the reality of the world that we live in. They do violence to human relationships. And so this section includes some of Jesus' hardest practical teaching. It comes to us and we squirm. Here's why it matters. Jesus' goal is not to be hard on you or I. That's not what he's doing in this passage. He's not beating his people up. He's not just trying to under the thumb. He's not trying to be hard on you and I. He is giving, uh, his goal in giving these commands is the lifelong love of husband and wife. That's his goal. The lifelong love of husband and wife. Whenever, uh, we know this in human relationships, whenever there are strong boundaries in place, they have a way of keeping us in place and helping us to respond in ways that we may have thought impossible. So you, you probably know this from your experience on any kind of a team, but maybe you take a sports team, for example. When you commit yourself to the team, you cannot just not show up and not pull your weight, but you are committed now to the team and some of those boundaries and some of the progress that occurs in practice, it takes you because you're committed to it. Those boundaries are in place of not quitting. It, the, the, the practice, the, the exertion that you give yourself to, it takes you further than you thought was necessarily possible. You all know this when we try to run, whether we're runners or not, our mind quits before our body has to oftentimes. And so... Uh, when we stay committed in our human relationships, within our boundaries, we, we, we reach new levels of performance that we wouldn't have necessarily otherwise. Now, a marriage covenant or a marriage commitment is meant to keep us in the relationship even if we want out for a purpose so that we will work through our challenges and reach new heights of loyalty and new heights of love. When we do this, when we give ourselves to this process, it thereby is meant to show God's character to those all around. Our marriages, the mess and all of it, are meant to become illustrations of God's grace as two unworthy, unwholesome, broken-hearted people are striving to love one another. You could say it like this, marriage is the marriage relationship, it's a laboratory. These are labs for forgiveness. These are labs for mercy. These are labs for generosity. These are labs of goodwill, labs of loyalty to one another. They're, they are, they're a laboratory where we work out the deepest level of human commitment. That's what it is. You know this. When you get married, like you start splashing up on one another and like, holy moly, like your sin runs deep, but I had no idea my sin runs as deep as it does. And they're meant to reveal in us need 
Here's where we're going this morning. Give you a roadmap. Um, we're going to look at divorce according to Moses. We're going to look at divorce according to the Pharisees who've taken his teaching and then kind of loosened it and shifted it and morphed it. And then we're going to look at divorce according to Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. So go there in your Bibles, page 760. Um, this is God's word here. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus He's continuing a sentence here. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. She remarries. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. We're also going to be reading from Matthew chapter 19, which fills out a little bit more of Jesus' teaching here on marriage and divorce. Now, Jesus comes in right above uh, this passage that I just read, and he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on to say, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. What Jesus is doing here is he's reaching back into the teaching of Moses. He's reaching back into a book called Deuteronomy, specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses one through four. That's what Jesus is specifically referenced by. You have heard that it was said. Deuteronomy, as an Old Testament book, it functions a bit like Moses' farewell address to the people of Israel. He's finishing up his ministry as a prophet. He's finishing up his life, actually. He's getting ready to literally die. And he's going to turn over the leadership of the nation of Israel to a man named Joshua. And so Moses, he, uh, what he does is he wants to retell the people of Israel the law here. At all costs, Moses wants the people of Israel to remember and to live by the covenant that God has made with them. Deuteronomy, it's actually a Greek word, and it means copy of the law. Transliterated, that's what Deuteronomy means in your Bible. Copy of the law. In the Hebrew, um, the, the transliteration, the exact phrasing of it is, these are the words. These are the words. Anytime a person is giving you their last words, Listen, they're very, very, very important. And so what Moses does in Deuteronomy is he's retelling again what he's already said before. Now, this is what Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses one through four say. It'll be up on the screen. When a man takes a wife and marries her, okay, when a man uh, takes a wife and he marries her, I want you to listen to the language and I want you to listen to the perspective of man and woman here in this passage because there's, there, there, is, uh, there is positive and negative going on in this passage, even though it just kind of looks straight to us. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he, is found, because he has found some indecency or uncleanness in her, and if he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. You see the language here. He's, sent, he's, he's finding something wrong, and then he is sending her out of the house. He's pushing her out of the relationship. He's giving her a certificate of divorce. Verse two of Deuteronomy 24. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, this is a patriarchal society, women had one of two options. They would either move in back with their families, mom and dad, siblings, and because divorce was so looked down upon, it would bring dishonor and it would bring a sense of shame on the family by the community around them. And it was unbearable to imagine 
the shame involved in being sent out of your marriage and having to move back in with mom and dad way different than it would be today. Although there are definitely echoes and hints of that in how we respond today. The other option would be a woman would, re would remarry because this is a patriarchal society where women cannot vote, they do not have influence, they do not hold property, they're on their own. And so remarriage is a way of survival. It's very, very, very practical. So if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter, now this new man hates her, there's the language, hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, that second husband who took her to be his wife, then her first or former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord." And then he finishes by saying, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, why was this provision for legal divorce given to Israel through Moses? Why was it given in the first place? Jesus actually answers that question in Matthew chapter 19. I want you to go there with me real quick. But he's gonna answer the command, why was it given? So Matthew chapter 19, verse three, listen to this. And Pharisees, came up to him, Jesus, and tested him. So you know the intentions of their heart. This is their posture. They want to test him. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words. They test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read? These are the teachers of the law. There's humor in this. There's a bit of a rebuke in all of this. Have you not read? You're teachers. You know this book by heart, literally. Have you not read that he who create? he's actually referring to the very beginning of what they memorized as small children and what they keep referring to, Genesis chapter one. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, Jesus said. Now they return and they say, uh, they, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? Look at the cunning in their language. Why, why did Moses then command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, here's the answer. Why does it exist in the first place? Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed, not commanded, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, here's a reiteration of what he's just said to us in Matthew chapter five, whoever divorces his wife, comma, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now the disciples are beside, beside themselves in this moment. They take it a bit too far. They say, well, it's better not even to marry if this is on the table. It's better to just not even go there in the first place. But Jesus is, is trying to stress the importance of marital commitment here. Now, why in the world was the provision, the, 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 um, provision for legal divorce given to Israel through Moses in the first place? It was because of the hardness of heart, primarily on the, on, on the point of the husbands in the society. When Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he's saying it was because of your hardness of heart. As Moses is speaking to the people of Israel, saying it's because of your hardness of heart, the people that he, were speaking, that he was speaking to were primarily the subjects were the men. 
It's because of your hardness of hearts, which means um, by some inference that Jesus had the protection of women in view. It's also important to, to, to say this, and I want you guys to hear me loud and clear, that a person who initiates a divorce on biblical grounds is not necessarily hard of heart. Rather, because of hard-hearted rebellion against God, there is defilement in human relationships and irreparable damage to human relationships. Some of those relationships where irreparable damage had been done were in the context of marriages. The law had already addressed the subject of adultery by the time we get to Deuteronomy chapter 24. It, it, it addresses how adultery in a marriage breaks and defiles the marriage covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22 says this, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the adulterer and the adulteress, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Here is what God has in view as he gives this command through Moses, the protection of the family. In the same way that anger leading to murder protects life, lust leading to adultery and adultery leading to divorce also protects marriages. It protects the family. It protects what you have probably heard as the building blocks of society. We cannot afford to take these things lightly. If anyone was caught in the act of adultery, there's no need for a divorce. Why? Because the marriage is already effectively ended. How? Through the death of the one who committed adultery. That marriage covenant is now ended. It's very important for us to keep this principle in view as we're looking at Old Testament treatment of adultery and New Testament treatment of adultery. Um, Bruner, Frederick Dale Bruner is a guy who I've been leaning heavy on in this uh, series. He says this, the bill of divorce required in Deuteronomy 24 was a civilized act for the time. For the ancient people of God were apparently divorcing their wives too easily. From Deuteronomy 24 forward, a man must provide the woman he divorced with at least the dignity of a document indicating the divorce was his decision, not hers, and so freeing her to be married again. Jesus would teach later in Matthew 19.8 that this was a concessionary legislation. So I want you to listen to this language closely here. Don't let it confuse you too much. This concessionary legislation on the grounds of sexual immorality was intended to damn the eroticism of, male of a male chauvinism that dismissed wives without sufficient legal rights and then thought they could just take them back at pleasure. It's protecting against the abuse of women. The paper, literal, in the hands, document that would be given to a woman of Deuteronomy 24's confession, or concession rather, put a legal right into the woman's, into the women's hands, if not a sense of self-respect into their hearts. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Matthew would go on and say the situation of men divorcing women at will in the Old Testament had become chaotic. It was creating all kinds of chaos in society. At that time, it was grossly unfair, particularly to women and children, because it would lead to untold and endless suffering on their part. 
Moses' divorce allowance was not a command. It was an allowance only given in cases of extreme circumstances. Now, the Old Testament is not clear on exactly what is meant by, uh, in Deuteronomy 24, I think verse 1 or 2, if a man finds any indecency in his wife, it's a sort of uncleanness that means nakedness or exposure. It's not talking about adultery at all on the part of the woman. It's, fa- it's talking about some other form of um, indecency here. And this could just, this could just um, simply illustrate the fact that, that the men were hard-hearted and nitpicking and just looking for ways to pick on and pick at their wives. In any case, for a divorce to occur, there had to be an extreme cause. Moses' concession of divorce was greatly limited in scope, and it provided an actual piece of paper to this woman proving that she had been dismissed, thus protecting her and allowing her the opportunity for remarriage. So her husband sends her away, but she has proof in writing. If she was remarried, her previous husband couldn't take her back. They cannot just mistreat and walk in and out of marriage at will. And I said, I alluded to this, but it, in fact, it placed primary blame on the husband because he sent her away, thus causing her to commit adultery if she were to be remarried to survive and to provide for her kids. Who knows if her parents were still even alive? Who knows if there was even somebody to take her in? Those options were not always on the table. Over the centuries, the Pharisees then had taken Moses' provision in Deuteronomy 24 and perverted it. How? They loosened the law's commands over time. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about um, the, the law not passing away. He taught on this about a month ago. And Jesus explicitly in that um, section, in that passage, he says, anyone who loosens the commands of the law will be seen as least in the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing, according to Jesus. Now, we've looked at divorce according to Moses in brief. Let's look at divorce according to the Pharisees. Matthew 19, which we read, um, gives us a broader view of how the Pharisees had come to approach divorce. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Any cause. Notice their language there. And then they'll go on to say, why then, in verse 7, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? First, I've said it, you've caught it. Moses never commanded divorce. He allowed it in very unique circumstances. Why? Because Jesus answers that question with his response, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, this was not the intent. This is a concessionary response to the fall of man and to the way that we screw up the things around us. Second, um, in their kind of questioning of Jesus, there's a cultural piece at play here too. Uh, There were two uh, competing rabbinic schools of thought in that day. There, were, uh, there was a, a rabbi named Shammai and a rabbi named Hillel. And these two rabbis were incredibly influential and they were training the Pharisees up. And then they would come, these Pharisees, as they, as, as they grew and developed and in the sight of their rabbis and in the sight of the people of Israel, they would come into the Sanhedrin and they would begin to rule over Israel. Well, there's a conservative school of thought taught by Rabbi Shammai. And Rabbi Shammai was concerned on this Deuteronomy 24 passage with this word indecency. And they, and they were very, very, very conservative. And they taught that it meant some sort of sexual immorality. 
but there was also a very liberal school of thought taught by Rabbi Hillel. They believed that divorce could be granted for, quote, any indecency. That's in the text of, of, uh, of Deuteronomy 24, any indecency. And so they were hung up on the word any. And so um, they began, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to develop a, a sort of commentary on the Old Testament called the Mishnah. And this Mishnah was kind of like a guiding document that helped them interpret the Old Testament. And in the Mishnah, it be, they began to, um, to, to kind of liberalize Moses' teaching. And the any, any indecency piece here that was really held firm by Rabbi Hillel meant that you could literally send your wife away for being a bad cook, burning the bread. It's, there's an example in there, even having a big nose. So like having some sort of physical defect, the man could then focus on that, decide that he wanted to give his wife a certificate of divorce and would. This was not Moses's intent. This was certainly not God's intent in giving it through Moses. The more widely followed of the two schools, obviously, was the more liberal one. Because if you're looking for a way out, who are you going to gravitate toward? Pharisees essentially come up to Jesus and they test him to see who he agrees with. Do you agree with any cause? That's in their language. Any cause? Can we send our wives away for any cause? Do you agree with Hillel? That's who we're coming from. That's who we're repping. Jesus doesn't answer based on the question that was asked, but instead he reaches back to the very beginning of creation and what he does by saying, have you not read the one who created them, created the male and female to come together to become one flesh? He refuses to validate either of these two most, these two influential rabbis of this time, but instead he stands in, his teaching stands in judgment over theirs. His aim is to correct the modern false interpretation and perversion of Moses' divorce allowance. Now, the way that Jesus does this is to argue back on his terms rather than on their terms. Have you not read? Male and female. A man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. The two will become one. They're no longer now two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate over centuries, the people of Israel were being misled on divorce and how God views it. And we've seen uh, some whispers here of how Jesus views divorce. He's so straightforward, so straightforward as Matthew records it, as Mark records it, as Luke records it. Divorce according to Jesus, this is my last point. Back to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's remember where we've been. Moses, by God's command and, and, and as a prophet, helped to bring protection to women and children in a day when chaos reigned and when they were being mistreated, when they were being abused and therefore abandoned by ungodly, evil husbands. The Pharisees then distorted that body of teaching to some degree, that allowance that Moses gave the people of Israel and began to miss the point entirely. Always concerned with loopholes, the Pharisees were asking the wrong question what can we get away with and still be good? Maybe we're asking that question. If not on this topic, certainly on other topics in our lives, I ask the question, how close can I get to the line and still be good?
How far can I go? Just because we all ask that question doesn't make asking the wrong question the right question. We're still all asking the wrong question, how far can I go? The right question that should be governing, governing our decisions is this, what does Jesus want? What does the real Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, who is not dead but alive, who rules over all things and is authoritative by the word of his power, who is the beginning and in the end, the firstborn from among the dead, what does he want? What does he say to me? Am I willing to do what he wants? I know this is hard. I know for you, for us, this is hard. Seemingly impossible, perhaps excruciating for some of us to get our mind, our heart, our physiology into the space where we are open to following Jesus over against every single message it seems our mind, our heart, and our body is sending us in a situation. I do not take that lightly. And there's a question under these questions. Where is my allegiance? Where is my ultimate allegiance? Who, to whom am I directing my trust? Is it to Jesus, the risen, real Lord Jesus, who is present with us in this moment, paying attention to you and I in this moment, seeing our pain in this moment? Am I allegiant to him? Or perhaps an alternative that we all go to is allegiance to self. This really, my trusting in my own intuition, my own sense of wisdom, my own, uh, uh, my own driving desire for health and healing. I think that I know the way. This reveals the target of where our worship has taken aim, where who and what we're allegiant to. I want to say this. Divorce is so serious in the eyes of Jesus Christ that he, that he and his teaching gives us one exception, sexual immorality. The words of Jesus Christ recording in the scriptures give the people of God one exception for divorce. It's sexual immorality. The word used for sexual immorality is the word porneia. You're already recognizing the root of that word where we get other words in our culture, porneia. Porneia is this broad word for sexual immorality that encompasses adultery, that encompasses incest, that encompasses sexual immorality, really of uh, any kind of, of uh, homosexuality as well, a variety of sexual sins or unsanctioned sexual intercourse. Porneia most, um, most clearly has sexual contact in view where two people physically engage with one another. That's what it most clearly has in view. But I'm going to be veiled in my language here, so track with me. Um, trustworthy pastors, trustworthy theologians, trustworthy counselors, trustworthy scholars would also include petting, oral, other forms of physical contact in the explicit category of sexual immorality. You may be asking the question then. Okay, the root word, porneia, 
something rampant in our culture. We talked about it last week. Does this also include the person who looks at porn? I'll say this. There is a very good reason that Jesus said what he said so briefly, so concisely. Because it gives us less room to create intricate loopholes, which we would. With every extra word, we're, we're, any indecency, we want to focus on that word, right? I heard an example recently of a counselor who um, was talking with a woman who caught her uh, husband lusting after another woman in a restaurant. This woman was indignant at that uh, and came back to the counselor and said, well, in Matthew 5, 28, it says, if anybody looks at a woman with lustful intent, he's already committed adultery with her in her heart. Therefore, my husband's an adulterer, so I must divorce him. But if we take that logic, if we follow that logic all the way to its end, it's the same if we accuse every angry person in the room who's angry with their brother, if we accuse them of being a murderer, now what? Are we just going to start sentencing everybody to life in prison? If we take that logic to its end immediately, now we all have permission to just divorce our spouses rampantly. Instead, here's what we do. Here's how we respond. We hold that Jesus' teachings in these things is they, they begin in the heart. They begin in the heart. They're deadly serious to our souls and to the people around us. And therefore, we check them and we seek to deal with them immediately. Immediately. But I do not see, and I think I'm with a great company of uh, of scholars and pastors far more smart, more degrees on their wall than I have, more degrees than Fahrenheit even in some cases, they, 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 they would say that like that logic does not go. We would begin to just start to accuse one another and just breaking up our marriages all over the board. No way, not a chance. Start accusing one another. Be careful if you bite and devour one another that you are not consumed by one another, the brother of Jesus James says. You might be asking, what about an addiction to pornography? What about an addiction to pornography? Is divorce justified by Jesus then? I'll say this, and I'm not gonna offer a lot of commentary on it, perhaps. In extreme cases, where there is a long record of non-repentance. A long record of non-repentance. That repentance can sometimes look like, I'll change, I'll change, I'll change, and then never change. You get caught again, caught again, caught again, caught again. 10 years later, 15 years later, it never changes. That may be non-repentance. In summary, according to Jesus, if anyone divorces their spouse except for sexual immorality, they cause the spouse to commit adultery if they remarry. That's how Jesus ends his statement in Matthew chapter five. Because if the spouse is sent away for something other than adultery, in God's view, the marriage is still there. The marriage is still intact. They are not remarried to someone else, yet that covenant still binds in God's sight. But the moment you cross over and you fornicate or the moment you have sexual contact with another person, an affair, then that marriage covenant is defiled and broken. Whoever marries that person becomes guilty of adultery because the prior um, divorce isn't legitimate in the eyes of God. So I'll say this, according to Jesus, any divorce not initiated because of sexual immorality does not warrant remarriage. This is a hard teaching. 
And I will say this, the scriptures do have more to say in them about marriage and about remarriage, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where the apostle Paul begins to open up what it looks like to be abandoned, whether functionally abandoned or actually abandoned. Functional abandonment occurs when a spouse is in the home but has left the marriage, has stopped emotionally investing. Just because you live in the same house doesn't mean you have not abandoned your spouse. He begins to open up these provisions because people are asking, what about these cases? If an unbeliever leaves the marriage, let them go. You're not bound. You're no longer a, a slave to that marriage covenant. But if, a, if an unbelieving spouse wants to live with you, permits or, or, or accepts that, and he says they will live with you, do not divorce them, the apostle Paul says. So he'll start to, uh, the Bible will start to tell us a little bit more about divorce and remarriage. But I wanted to, uh, I wanted to really focus in on the words of Jesus here and give us an opportunity to take them dreadfully seriously. So, if you are wrestling with this in a big way, here's where I'll land. For whatever reason, uh, for whatever reason you're wrestling with this, I want to, um, I want to extend two resources your way. One, you can read or listen to it. It's a book. It's written by a guy named Jim Neuheiser. It's called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, and the subtitle is Critical Questions and Answers. This book is essentially a question and response book. Um, it's got like 75 or 80 just questions and responses. He's a pastor, a theologian. It's really, really, really helpful. And he hits all the topics, all of them. Pornography, abuse, abandonment, um, adultery. And he is so measured. And I, I just like, I, I, I've leaned on this. Um, I've leaned on this. It's been a great help. Here's the second resource I wanna offer you. Um, you can find it at alloflife.church forward slash divorce. Uh, it's a Dropbox file with five white papers in it written by various theologians and pastors whom I trust. These are other documents that I have uh, leaned on. Um, they, they, they just will help you study it, help you know. You can download them anonymously. Nobody's gonna know you hit that link. Feel free. If you, um, if you have the courage or, you, uh, or maybe it's not a courage issue, it's just a readiness issue for you at this time, um, if you would, if you're going to download those, and if you're, if you're, not if you're going to download those, if you're wrestling with this topic in a big way, please let me know. Can we pray for you? Can we pray together? Can I help to resource you? Can, can we work together on this? I understand that there are a million situations that need, that they are nuanced situations about what you've endured in your marriage, what you've suffered, what you've undergone. Every single unique uh, situation is drastically unique. Don't do it alone. So the title of my message this morning was Divorce? Question mark. Go slow. Exclamation point. Please. Father, press this teaching into us. Uh, Help us to respond in a way that honors your son, the teaching of your son. Help us to hold fast to the Holy Spirit who guides us toward life and godliness. Help us endure what we feel is unimaginable right now. Bring healing to your people, understanding to your people. Help your people honor you and honor one another. And also help us understand the limits to our humanity where we need to. 
our humanity brings with it limitations. Help us to be attentive to those in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this is uh, an opportunity for some Q&R. Do we have any questions? We've got, a, we've got a question. So if you want to send them in, there's a little bit of lag time. Feel free if you've got some questions. I will try to, I'll try to hit them. This is a, a sensitive enough subject. In the first gathering, there's a really good question. I just, in the moment, I decided not to answer it because I, I just, I wasn't prepared to answer it. Felt some of that compulsion to want to give a good answer. Um, but I, I recognize that in these kinds of situations, especially where there's a kind of tenseness and a story, I don't want to off the cuff treat that lightly and do some damage where it could have been avoided. But I will walk with these things. I'll walk along with you behind the scenes if you do need some help. So throw that first question up and we'll take a stab at it. The biblical passages center on the husband and his volition in circumstances surrounding divorce. Would you say that the biblical allowance and grounds of divorce apply equally and explicitly to both sexes and grant the wife equal volition just as the expectation of faithfulness and grace apply to both? What a good question. Uh, I think in the, New T in the Old Testament, we don't see that very clearly. We see the woman being at the whims of her husband in the Old Testament. The New Testament offers a radically different view of gender, a radically different view of worth and dignity. Um, primarily what I can speak to on this question is the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, he is speaking to both husbands and wives in the context of divorce. And he explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 7, if a husband divorces his wife, and then he gives a da 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 and then he also says, if a wife divorces her husband. And so it seems that there is some equality, particularly in the New Covenant era between genders. But yes, I think the principle in our era um, is based on the last part of your question. Just as the expectation of faithfulness and grace apply to both, yes, we are in an equal relationship. There is equality in the marriage relationship. Uh, positionally, we're a complementarian church, which means not that uh, some people will take this way too far and men will be the head of the house. And what I say goes, that is dangerous, especially for prideful men. But a complementarian worldview can be such and should be such, the ideal is that the man sees himself as servant head of the house. He is the lead servant in his home. Not the one to be served, but the servant. Ephesians chapter 5, the Lord Jesus Christ did what for his bride? He gave himself up for her, for her well-being, for her flourishing, period. No ifs, ands, or buts with that. So a man should be willing to go to work, get a job, keep his pants on, serve his family, love his people, and give of himself. And as a woman sees that and comes to flourish, the Apostle Paul will say, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in a complementarian view, the man takes the lead, particularly in service and in courageous decisions. 
and a woman is called to follow. But in a healthy marriage, there must, must, must be a willingness, a, a relational and functional willingness on the part of the man to defer to his wife. Because, women, you are wise. So the way this works itself out in our marriage in particular, and I don't, I'm not going to share too much, but there are often times when I want to do something and Meredith pushes back on me. At my, uh, to my folly, and uh, there have been moments when I have not listened to her. I've not listened to her intuition. I've moved too quickly. And it comes back to not be the, the ideal for the family. But because my, my wife is wise and because my wife is filled with the Holy Spirit and because my wife is also respectful, which makes me flourish in the home, when she pushes back on me, it's 12, almost 13 years now, I listen. I must listen to my wife. She is my greatest counselor in this life. We've got to hold a robust view of complementarianism if we're going to wave that flag. A robust view where women are released to use their gifts, to bless the church, to strengthen the church. And a man's posture is one of service and loyalty and respect also to his wife. I'm going to close with that. Uh, if you asked a question and want to follow up on it that we didn't get to this morning, feel free to come up and, and chat and we can, we can talk a little bit.